murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. All right, on this True Law Stories, we're going to talk about cyber stalking, revenge porn, documentaries, and the problem of deep fake porn and individuals, how to determine jurisdiction in cyber stalking cases, the need for the change in accountability, and how to set up a case against someone if you are the victim of revenge porn or cyber stalking. I've got Stephanie Myron of Kagan Myron Law on. Stephanie, say hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. And thanks for being here. And of course, before we get started, this is brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. One of the best ways to grow your business is through customer stories, not testimonials. Go to VideoCaseStory.com where we can help you collect, craft, and deliver those amazing stories. All right, let's get started. So you do some pretty, you defend people that have been victims of these things, correct? Yes, I exclusively represent victims of stalking, cyber stalking, revenge porn, and sexual violence. All right, how'd you get into this? <laughs> Starting out, I was a prosecutor where shortly after the stalking law, the criminal law went into effect in Florida. And I remember having a few of these cases come across my desk and nobody really knew how to properly prosecute them. The detectives didn't really know how to properly investigate them. And so I was really interested in this law early on in my career because I saw this as an opportunity for the law to be proactive because the way the law is written in Florida is it doesn't require threats of harm or actual harm for them to be able to take action. And so I thought that was a great opportunity to really have an impact and help victims before it gets worse. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's definitely on the rise, isn't it? Everything, all this stuff because of social media, et cetera. Exactly. And so cyber stalking is specifically included under our stalking statute. So the use of electronic means to target and harass individuals and people doing and saying terrible things that they would never say to people if they were face to face. And so you get this this disconnect where people just stop viewing the person on the other end of the screen as a human being. It's just the dehumanization and you see the if the impact of that and how people interact with each other. It's it is it's scary. And and at what point, because I'm gonna get into these stories, but I mean it's there's gotta be this gray area, right? Of someone just leaving a nasty comment versus and or a few nasty comments versus actual online what's considered harassment and stalking. So where's that threshold? So in Florida, the case law requires at least two points of contact. So two separate instances for it to really be considered stalking. However, with most of the cases that I've dealt with, once you start talking to the victim and going over the real timeline and the history, that this is really, usually it's been going on for a while and they tolerate a lot. And it usually comes to a breaking point at some point in the relationship, if there's an but sometimes it's a complete stranger who is harassing someone, especially if it's online. And that's where it's really terrifying because you don't know if they don't, you don't have any understanding of their background or their mental well-being, what they're actually capable of or what they might do. And that's where it's really important to take 
everything seriously because you don't know, are they really going to act on this or not? Yeah, it, it's scary. And you're right. You just don't know who's on the other side. For some reason in my head, I always imagine some 15-year-old boy or some like 50-year-old man in his <laughs> yeah. parents' basement. Those are like my two go-tos when I'm like, <laughs> when I get like nasty comments on our videos. I'm like, but what has been the most surprising, like when you've been involved with this, have you had to suss out who the stranger was? And, and when you find that out, what are some of the surprising things you found? So a lot of times, if there are personal details that are included in the harassment, then that's a major clue that it's probably someone who you know personally. But now, depending on what information this person is putting out about them online, it's not necessarily someone that you know. And it's really interesting to see just how people will fixate on someone out of the blue for whatever reason. And in a lot of those cases, it's not something that's short term, but something that will go on for years. And so it's really, it's, it's interesting and terrifying to see, you know, how people just get obsessed with either someone they know or a stranger, and they are not able to move on their own. And it takes something like an injunction or law enforcement to force them to stop that harassment. Yes, it's people get so obsessed, so obsessed and get so angry. And so you had actually one client that that they actually made a documentary about. Yes. So she was a retired news anchor. And so she had a lot of connections and uh, a background to be able to be a voice for people in that situation. And so in her case, an ex of hers had taken private sexual images and created a website in her name and sent that website and posted all of his images and sent that to her business colleagues, her family, friends, did this solely to harass her. And what she did is she took that and created a documentary to become a voice and a platform. And she reached out to other people who've gone through similar situations with sexual cyber harassment, the revenge porn cases. And the documentary is called 50 Shades of Silence. But throughout our process, we had a film crew coming in for our hearings. We had all kinds of interviews and we worked with law enforcement Because in her case, the respondent, the defendant was actually in another country. And so what happened is the information that we gained through our case was turned over to law enforcement. And luckily in that country, they had just enacted a criminal law on that issue. And I think it was the first or one of the first cases they actually prosecuted under their statute for the posting of the private sexual images online. So it was really fascinating to see all of that, how it works together and really put a stop to it because sometimes it does take that criminal action to force someone to stop that type of harassment. And so that and that brings up an interesting point. First of all, what was the outcome of it? The, how did it stop? How did it stop? Yes, to my knowledge, the website was removed and the harassment had stopped. It took getting a stalking injunction against him here in Florida and then criminal action against him in his country. And then what she did after that, she organized a national march against revenge porn, brought together a bunch of different people who've experienced similar situations. And she really became 
a voice for this movement and really empowered other people who were in that sim- similar situation, but helped them not to feel so isolated and alone and to let them know they could do something about it. Yeah, it's pretty scary. And it's just, and now with deep fakes, I can't even imagine that's, that's just a whole nother level. Absolutely. Because it still has the same negative impact on you, on your career. There's news articles coming out about people walking into job interviews and they're asked, Hey, can you explain this folder full of images we found of you online? And the person has no idea what they're talking about because they're not really them in the images. It's just made to look like them and, you know, how to address that. And so I think that's going to be the next wave of issues we have to address is it's still having that devastating impact on that person. And what's the, what's the proper balance there? And how can we criminalize this act? Because it's still having an intentional detrimental act on harmful impact on that person. It's crazy. Yeah. And just, there's so much coming out. And then like you've, you've mentioned another country, the internet, right? It doesn't really have borders per se, except for exactly. a few country. How do you enforce this? Can it be enforced in the U.S. and then cause an action someplace else? What's the future of this? So luckily, the way that the law works with cyber crimes and with the cyber harassment, the harm is being done to the victim where the victim is. So if that person who is harassing the victim, they're specifically targeting while they're, for example, here in Florida, then Florida has jurisdiction to the, you can go forward in Florida for the injunction to report the criminal charges, things like that. And depending on what's going on in the case, and sometimes different agencies like the FBI, or in that scenario where we had to, where the, the victim worked with law enforcement in the other country, it was coordinated through the FBI, where the FBI was the one who actually examined her devices and sent that information abroad. And there was a lot of coordination there between agencies, which can be helpful. And so depending on the other country that's involved, that's where it depends on the level of success and really enforcing something like that or going forward against someone who happens to be in another country. And then there's the case of the, because obviously there's, there's laws there, but then you have people like Google just going, you know what, we're not responsible for what we're putting on Google. (laughs) And that's where there's a federal statute, the Communications Decency Act. And there is a specific protection for these host websites where you can't really go after them and hold them liable for something that is appearing on their page. And so that's where, when that came out, I don't think that they really had the, they really understood the level of impact that it has when, if you report something to that website to remove it and they don't take action, or if they don't have the proper measures in place to be able to remove something that shouldn't be there effectively, the impact that it has. And I think that to keep up with the time, there should be some accountability there. And without changing that provision, there's not a lot that we can do yet. But I think that with the way things are going and the, I, I've been, I was on a panel 
speaking to a group in South Florida. And on the panel with me was a mother whose daughter had committed suicide because of online cyberbullying. And when she was, I think, in grade school or middle school when it had occurred. Oh. And so just the damaging impact that, that something like that can have. And I'm not, I don't know what the details were of if it was reported or things like that, but I think that there needs to be some accountability there on platforms that host this type of harassment or intentionally host this type of harassment or know about it and don't do anything about it because it is, it's serving as a means for terrible things to occur. And so I think that there needs to be some accountability to do something about it and prevent this type of harm. And so how can, you know, your average person help push forward that type of accountability? The accountability to change a federal statute, and that's where it really comes down to the lobbying. And I think that's where we ended up with the Communications Decency Act the way that it is. So just making people aware of why why it's hard to go after those types of companies, what impact it could have if that law changed, and why it's necessary. But I think that for the general public, things that can help motivate them are just general online safety. Or I think whenever a person becomes a parent, they start to view the online world a little bit differently. And that's when they may start to care on just general online safety training. Just people should be aware, but especially parents need to be aware what their children are seeing and doing and what who is be able to access their children through the different platforms they're using. Yeah. And I guess, and it's also like you mentioned, it's like one of those things until it, it hits home, you have a different view of it. It literally hits yeah. home. And you've seen it too. We were talking about it before the show in the courts, even in the judges have a different perception of it because probably because it hasn't affected them directly. Is that a like a viewpoint into a, a lens into the rest of the world? Absolutely. A lot of my cases starting off I think now with Zoom and technology, judges are having to learn how to deal with these online platforms. But yes, a lot of what I do, especially whenever there's different cyber stalking going on, is making sure, because our cases for injunctions, it's a bench trial, so it's not a jury. And some judges really don't understand how these applications work. And so making sure that when I reference a platform, that they really understand what I'm talking about and walking them through that. But it definitely makes an impact if they can follow along and understand how this technology really impacts someone's life. It may not be something that they use or rely on. And especially if you're dealing with someone who's a minor or in Social media, it takes on a different form for someone like that. And so just making sure that they really understand the impact that it has on these individuals. Yeah, it's because it's one of those things too. I think if you don't really understand the breadth of it and also that it, even if you get everything taken off, it's still, it's like taking the pee out of the pool is what they always say. (laughs) Absolutely. The impact of having images posted out there. I've had clients who didn't even know that those images were taken, where they were either taken while they were asleep or through cameras that were inside the home they didn't know about. And the law applies either way. Imagine the first time you realize that these images even exist is when someone's telling you that, hey, look, this was sent to me, or I happened to see this online and I wanted to let you know the impact that has on someone. It's 
it's trauma and just recognizing it as trauma and how to process that trauma, because that's something once it's out there, it's impossible to completely get rid of. It's there's steps you can take to monitor and try to mitigate, but that's really at that point, what it's about, because once something's online, you lose control of it. It's out there. Yeah, for sure. And it's, yeah. And you lose the ability to find it too, (laughs) where you could, it's like whack-a-mole. Right. And so yes, absolutely. If someone if someone thinks that they have a cyber stalking issue or has been waiting there for a long time or is worried about possible revenge porn or obviously is deep into it, what are the first steps to go through? Getting a timeline together, saving screenshots, because a lot of times it's very normal, especially if it's an X or something like that, where you just want to delete it or block it and not look at it or think about it. To really build your case, you're going to need to save the screenshots of the call logs of the messages, save the screenshots of those images, the full web address for where those images are found, any identifying information about the poster, what account it's posted from, the date anything associated with it, just to help that company identify to be able to remove, but even reporting it to law enforcement. So they know exactly what images you're referring to, but just getting all of that together in a detailed timeline, because that's what you're going to need to be able to go forward, either with an injunction or to go forward, making a criminal report. But that's really the first major step. And people have a different threshold. And, you know, what I find interesting, because I have clients who are male, female, the full spectrum, and every person has their own threshold of what they will tolerate before speaking up, before getting help. And sometimes it's actual fear that something is going to happen to them if they don't speak out. And sometimes they're worried they're going to lose their job if they don't do something to stop it because the harassment may be occurring where that person's calling their work or interrupting their work or things like that. And it just depends, but any unwanted, harmful contact that causes substantial emotional distress and serves no legitimate purpose. If there's a pattern there, then they may have the ability to get a stalking injunction to to put a stop to that harassment. Yeah. And is it ever too soon to start reporting it? Absolutely. Absolutely not. The worst thing that can happen is that law enforcement, they say, sorry, we don't have probable cause to move forward yet, but making that paper trail. Sometimes, even if it doesn't rise to that level yet, law enforcement may make a call to that person and tell them to stop whatever that contact is. And in some scenarios, that's enough. Getting a call from a law enforcement officer may make that person reevaluate their decisions and think twice before doing it again. And if not, you're in a better position to go forward because now in that timeline, you can say, look, after being called by law enforcement, they still did X, Y, and Z. And so speaking out, trying to get help, trying to take some action, because with stalking cases, you have to show that pattern and that history. And so just because it may not be enough yet, if that person doesn't stop, then you can refile. And in the future, you may have a different result. And so that's really what it takes is letting that person know that they're not going to get away with it and that you're not going to just sit back. And a lot of times, sadly, that's just when that person moves on to their next victim because they know that they're not going to get away with treating that person like that any longer. So scary. So scary and so upsetting. I'm just gonna, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but and, uh, tell me a little bit about working with you. And if what point does someone call you up and say, I need help? 
really depends. There's a lot of times where I just get that initial call where sometimes there's some red flags, there's something unsettling that was said or something maybe during a breakup and they'll just reach out to know what their options are or if something should be done. In certain situations, they know that there's images in that other person's possession that maybe were sent consensually, will sometimes sending off a cease and desist letter regarding that, letting that person know the consequences if they did take any other steps regarding those images. Sometimes that can be enough to put them on high alert and try to prevent that from happening. And so there are certain things that can be done to prevent images being distributed or things like that before it even happens. And so it's never too late to be proactive. Great. Great. So obviously get it, go to your website. We'll put a link to your website in the show notes, cabinetmyronlaw.com. There's a contact form. And do you work with only people in Florida? Do you do this throughout the country? Honestly, I get calls from all over. And so if I, I'm only licensed to practice in Florida, but there is a federal statute on the sexual cyber harassment. And if it's a call from Elsewhere, I will either try to put them in contact with another attorney in another state or try to find them someone who can help them. And in certain cases, I can still assist in some capacity, but if not, I'll do what I can to try to get that person some help. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. Stephanie, thanks so much for being on True Law Stories. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you all for taking Stephanie and I on your journey. This has been Iron Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need Video Case Stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.